Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. In the month of July, I will have Agent Eric Smith of PS Literary, Anika Rose Reese, former executive editor who has worked at Catherine Teagan Books, Simon Pulse, and Scholastic, as my guests for exclusive episodes available only through the Writer Writer Pants on Fire Patreon. Visit www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com forward slash Mindy McGinnis to learn more or check out the link in the episode credits. Authors, if you'd like to have your book featured in an ad spot here on the podcast, shoot me an email. 15 and 30 second spots are available starting at $3. You provide the text, I'll create the ad. Email me at mindy at mindymcginnis.com to learn more. Today's guest is Natalie D. Richards, author of the page-turning thrillers Six Months Later, One Was Lost, and We All Fall Down. Natalie joined me today to talk about landing an agent and the value of being active in writers' organizations. Dessa has a plan. Work hard, get perfect grades, go to art school. Then she doesn't get in and everything changes. Fans of Morgan Matson and Sarah Dessen will love this story about chasing your dreams and falling in love along the way. Pre-order Your Destination is on the Left by Lauren Spieler today. I always ask my agent and guests about their time in the query trenches. So who is your agent and how did you go about getting her? So I'm actually on my second agent. I am with Susie Townsend of New Leaf Literary. She's a goddess. I love her so much. But this happens. This is actually more common than you would think. And there's not some ugly, weird story or drama behind it. It's just sometimes as you change as a writer or as the industry changes, you just end up with a different agent. Mm -hmm. More interesting to most of your folks would be my first agent and how I got that agent. Once you're published, it's a little bit different to proceed with another agent. At that point, you probably already have an existing contract. At the time that I was pursuing an agent, I already had my publishing house coming to me saying, hey, we want another book. We might want another couple books. So it was a very different conversation. I already had a fairly certain sale, send a proposal at that point and say, hey, here are the books I've had. Here's the success I've achieved. It's that first time, right? It's the worst. I really think that the hardest thing in publishing for most of us is getting that first agent because Mm -hmm. not only does that agent have to love your voice and really connect with what you're doing. I mean, that's great. And that's hard enough, right? Finding somebody who commits like that but they have to feel totally confident that they can sell it. They can love it all they want, but if they don't think they can sell it, they can't say yes. So for those of you out there who are dealing with your 12th or 15th or 100th rejection, you are not alone. Most of us have that story. Getting your foot in that first crack in the door is very, very difficult. It can feel hopeless. Like there's no joke about that. And even those of us who are on the other side of that door now, I still remember that pain. It's not something you forget. No, no. I mean, I think 
every author has a memory of the day that they looked at rejection number 450 or what it feels like it. I mean, it's probably not, I didn't count them, but man, I didn't want to. I really felt like everything in the world is telling me to stop doing this. Why am I beating my head against this wall? But that's part of it. The beating your head against the wall. Well, don't quit that because you're going to have to do a lot of that from here on out. So I, I think that is the first big step. It is so hard and so ultimately worth it. It's just important. Yeah. And it teaches you some of the skills that you're going to need moving forward because you don't stop being disappointed and you don't stop being rejected. Wow. Right. That's so true. That is so true. So that's like the biggest thing I've learned being a published author is, Mm -hmm. oh, we're not done being rejected. No, now they do it on public on Amazon and in review stations. It's so it doesn't end. Now the letters just don't come to me personally where I can lay down in bed and cry about it. Sometimes people will read a one-star review I got to me while I'm standing at a book conference trying to sell a book. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's so, that's so helpful. Thank you. (laughs) It's the truth. When I used to work at the school, I had a kid, a student who liked to poke at me. That was okay because that's the kind of personality I have. I will go back and forth with the kids and I don't mind it so much. Right. Right. One day he kept trying to make me mad on purpose. Like that was his goal. He wanted to make me angry and he wasn't getting anywhere with it. And he went on Goodreads and he started reading one star reviews of my books out loud. Oh, terrific. That probably just made you feel great inside. So let's talk about some of the groups that you're active in, because I know there's a couple. You're active in your local SCBWI, which is Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and Mm -hmm. also a local RWA, Romance Writers of America, which I know isn't as active as it used to be, but that's how you and I initially met like a long time ago. Yeah, a long time ago. RWA is Romance Writers of America, which if anybody listening to this has read my books will make you laugh because I actually don't write romance. Having somebody kiss in your book actually doesn't mean it's a romance. I found they wanted to really support romance writers and hey, all power to them. That's what they're there for. And I don't write romance. I write thrillers. I felt like my work didn't fit in the realm that they wanted anymore. But that said, without a single question, they were an incredibly formative and helpful organization for me becoming a published writer. I attended several of their national conferences over the years, probably 2010 and 2011 and 12 being the most important ones. I had opportunities to meet agents, to meet editors. They had some of the best workshops I've ever been to at RWA national conferences Now, Mm -hmm. SCBWI, of course, I'm still active in because I do write for teens and I'm currently actually working on middle grade as well. They have absolutely one of the most dynamic writing websites I've ever seen. Incredible amounts of resources on there and a lot of member material that you can have access to. And their membership is not terribly unreasonable, but it's definitely worth it. They have a lot of good things. They also have, I find, while I don't think their national conferences are quite as educational and that craft aspect, maybe, I do believe their regional conferences are a little upper notch from some of the other organizations I've seen. really like both of those organizations, but for me, SCBWI is, is a better fit, certainly now. One thing about SCBWI to note is that while they do have 
two national conferences. They are a little bit different. So if you're thinking about joining SCBWI and you think, oh, I do, I want to go to a big conference, make sure you look at them. They very recently changed. They have a summer conference in Los Angeles and a winter conference in New York, but they're very different. So make sure you look into those a little bit before you make a choice because it kind of depends on what you're looking for. I am a member of SCBWI and a good friend of ours, Jody Casella, also a YA author and was a guest last year, yeah. is the director of our local group. So even if I didn't have friends in the group, I've been to a couple of the meetings. It's so helpful. You can get feedback. You can find a critique partner. It's a lovely way to connect with other writers in your genre. That's true of a lot of genre-based or age-based writing groups. So SCBWIs for children's and young adults. Look into RWA, Romance Writers of America, MWA, Mystery Writers of America. There's all kinds of regional groups and they can be a great way to find a critique partner or just learn some more. If you're just getting started, it's invaluable if you're looking to Totally agree. To join a writing organization for me was a, a very big public step. I said, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm serious enough about this that I'm going to drop some money on it. Not money on a little private class I'm taking, but I'm going to say I'm a writer to the point that I'm willing to say I'm going to join a membership. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be one of these other writers pursuing this. And I think Mm -hmm. something in my mindset really changed when I did that. It wasn't that I wasn't writing before but I took it more seriously. Like I'm laying down some cash now. Now I need to like pay attention to what I'm doing. So that helped me. When I met you for the first time, it was a conference at the Holiday Inn in Worthington in 2010, maybe. Much like you, that was my first experience actually putting down some money because I wasn't a member of RWA, but I went to that conference. So it was like probably $175, $200. That was an experience. I'm going to put some money down and I'm putting myself in front of agents and I bought nice clothes because all my clothes were out of date. So you're right. Putting down that money, it makes a difference on how you approach things. Let's talk about your books. Your first book, six months later, was an unexpected hit. You're published through Sourcebooks, which is a smaller press. So talk about the benefits of working with a smaller press, such as, for example, when a book like six months later takes off the way it did. And it really did. If you could talk about that for a little bit as well, you earn out sooner. This is a conversation that could be many days. Mindy and I could go right now to a cabin somewhere and talk about this forever. We might digress into screaming, throwing things, but anybody that's been in this rodeo at all can see pretty quickly that there are a lot of different ways to have a measure of success in publishing. There's no right way. So if anybody's telling you this is the way you have to do it, you have to get an agent and you have to do this and you stay away from that and you go with these houses, they're wrong. I can tell you that because... I know a lot of successful writers, and I don't know a single one that made the exact same choice as another one did. So there are a lot of ways to get here. My way was weird. I had an incredibly small advance for my book. When my book was bought, I had an incredible editor. I loved her. She really loved my book, but it was very clear. It was obviously very low expectations. Nobody really had any thought that this book would do anything like it did. So I think my initial print run was 5,000 copies. This book sold more than 100,000 copies. Now, I think I'm getting close to 120, maybe even more than that. I'm not sure. It sold a ridiculous number of copies. It is in its like 17th printing. It's been ridiculous. We don't know what That's happened amazing. to this book. It is crazy. 
But here are a few things I can tell you. So yes, that's amazing. And the great thing about being with a small house is they were able to flip on a dime. These big houses have the power of big advances and they have the power of incredible marketing. So I am saying nothing against your Harper Collins, your, your Simon Schuster's of the world. These are amazing houses that know how to do this. They're incredible. They're juggernauts. They know exactly how to get somebody into all the right places. However, mm-hmm. because they're a juggernaut, they're such a big house that they can't flip on a dime. They can't say, is this book taking off? Oh, wow, this book is really taking off. Let's flip our marketing plan. They can't do that. There's way too much invested, way too much is planned in advance. They can't always kind of shift that quickly. They're not as nimble. That's the price that you pay for the power. You know, it's just like a fighter. If you're that heavy, you're not that fast. Well, Sourcebooks was able to flip and get me in. They gained me placement in Target, Walmart, a couple of other big box locations. So they were really able to capitalize on what was happening and build on that momentum. Although I had an incredibly small advance, I earned royalties right away. So I did not have that shimmering moment of, look at my giant check, I'm going to take it to the bank. But I did get checks that continue to roll. And I continue to make money on that book all the time. So there are benefits to both. There's no right way to do it. There are a bunch of wrong ways. I could give you those, but there, there are no right ways to do it. There's no one set mm-hmm. formula. I think we're all looking for that silver bullet. I promise you, it does not exist. Mindy and I would both have it if it did. We've tried. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Your smaller press had that ability to make a change really fast and really get behind you. And even though your initial payment, your initial advance for that book was modest, you had earned it out so quickly. And because they were able to turn around and promote you widely. I mean, your books are in Target. I am not in Target. I saw your books in a mire. It's if you crazy. remember, I took a picture yep. for you. I was at a Meyer and I'm like, holy crap, that's Natalie's book. And I took a picture of it and I was just like, dude, I have never been in any of the big boxes. So dude, it's so weird. That's just got to make you feel amazing. It's, it's very, very weird. When my book was in my local grocery store, it made me so creeped out. Like I standing there ordering a Starbucks at my local Kroger and I look over and I'm like, well, that's really creepy. That's, I mean, right. it is exciting and incredible, but it's also just weird. I didn't even know everywhere it was. People would be like, I'm, I'm in a drugstore. Your book's here. I'm like, what, how did that happen? And when did that go on? And it was pretty cool and amazing. But also there are other things that Harper can do in the online world that my house doesn't quite have the same access to, but I've been very Mm -hmm. happy. They've been incredibly good to me. And the staff there is just unbelievable. They also have gotten a lot of attention. They're a woman owned independent publisher that has consistently grown for Mm -hmm. many years. So, so it's a good place to be. I, I really love them. Well, that's fantastic. A lot of people I know are with Sourcebooks and are very happy there. So more power to them. Yeah. Coming up, Natalie on how a one-off hit can lead to misleading covers on subsequent books and the complexities of author branding. Maria and Lily are their elite boarding school's ultimate power couple, and they're willing to do anything, absolutely anything, to make their dreams come true. But when they try to unseat campus golden child Delilah, feuds turn into fatalities and madness begins to blur the distinction between what's real and what is imagined. From author Robin Talley comes As I Descended, a lesbian Macbeth retelling that Bookless called an intriguing, appropriately atmospheric take on one of Shakespeare's most spine-tingling plays. Coming back to that early success with six months later, it's one of those things, though, 
that neither you nor your publisher quite understood why that book took off. And that's really cool because, as everyone will tell you in publishing, you never know how to make something successful. And occasionally something becomes successful on its own. And that's great. You just feed the flames. That is a lovely experience when it happens. But because of the fact that six months later did explode, I think, like this is my personal opinion, that really affected then your following releases in the area of cover design. It so did. And then that became its own problem. So yeah, six months later did explode. And there is a lightning strike factor to that explosion. Like that is something that I think some authors who've had a book go really gangbusters like that, they really don't like. Some authors totally own it. I think John Green has really owned it. But some authors really like to say, well, I'm just that great. I I can tell you right now, I'm not just that great. There are many other very worthy books that have gotten zero attention, had crap sales, and I will never understand it. Um, The book did have very strong reviews. It did have a lot of pretty passionate uh, bloggers behind it right away. Um, So there was a little bit of a, a buzz there, but we didn't realize that it would kind of become the thing that it became. There were some factors, and one was the cover. I came out in a time when the vast majority of the covers were very, very dark. And and Mindy, you, you and I released very similar times and your first book did really, really well too. That was one that did real well for you, Not a Drop to Drink. And your cover was also a bit different. Very stark and everything that year was dresses. It was the dresses yes. year. Yes, yeah. yes. So neither of us had that. And I do think, you know, mine had the added benefit at that time, there were like almost no white covers. And I had this really Mm -hmm. stark white cover that really popped off the shelf. So that helped. My next book, Gone Too Far, they took that same basic white concept with a girl on the cover looking kind of pensive, which became misleading. Now, six months later, had a lot of buzz around it. And a lot of people were picking it up and most people were enjoying it. So it just kind of was perpetuating itself. So it was a good thing. It was a snake eating its own tail in the best possible sense of the word. When we got Mm -hmm. to things like Gone Too Far and My Secret to Tell, which were my next two releases, Gone Too Far did reasonably well. And then we really started to see a a tapering in the sales with My Secret to Tell. And I think one of the problems we had is I would go to book shows and I would watch people pick it up and say, wait, did I buy this? Is this a series? I can't, I don't know which one I have because they looked Mm -hmm. so similar that people were starting mm-hmm. to have some issue there. So I had that problem. A second problem I had is I had a lot of male readers saying, I really like what you write because you write kind of creepy page turners, but I don't want to carry this girly book around the halls of my school. Now, right or wrong, a 14-year-old boy is just not comfortable carrying a book with a girl on the cover. Mm-hmm. I wish the world were a different place, but unfortunately there are plenty of 14-year-old boys who are like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to have my friends laugh at me. So I Mm -hmm. had some reader feedback. I don't like these covers. I saw readers getting confused about the covers. I was having a hard time explaining. You can ask Mindy. Mindy and I spend a lot of time together at book shows. So she's seen me over and over again, the thing that I have to say, because we could pitch each other's books. That's a beautiful thing about having friends in the industry. And you do. If your friend is on to the restroom and you see somebody at their table, you will absolutely pop over and be like, hey, let me tell you about this. That's just how you do. Or when you're doing a signing a couple days before Christmas and Mindy has laryngitis. Yes, let me tell you about Mindy's books because they're awesome. That was a great signing kiosk. They're not all good, but that one was really fun. Finally, they kind of redesigned One Was Lost. They listened to me. They listened to readers. And, and I think they realized like, okay, we really are seeing an issue with sales. And again, being with a smaller house, they're not going to say, well, psh, 
screw that. We're going to just cut this loose. They're going to say, all right, let's rework this. How, what are we doing here? What happened? So I think when they went back to the drawing board, they brought me back a cover that I adored. It still had a girl on the cover, but it was orange and it was incredible. And I'll always love that cover until Barnes Noble said, we love this book and we want to buy a whole, whole lot of it because that's how it works, guys. They're the only game in town. So when Barnes and Noble says, we want this and we want a lot of it, but we want you to give us a gender neutral cover, then my house is going to probably say, yeah, I'm interested in doing that. So Barnes and Noble had some feedback. And of course, they're not laying down the law. They're just saying, we'd really like to see a more gender neutral cover on that. Would you be willing to look at that? And of course, I'd already been begging for that. So they were, they're very flexible at source books about reworking a cover until they have exactly the right one. And the cover they gave me for one was lost was just, it was the first time I'd gotten a cover that I just absolutely mouth dropped open. I'm like, change nothing. I love it. It was perfect. Mm -hmm. There's no complaint. Mm -hmm. And my sales reflected it immediately because it was a very gender neutral, spooky, immersive cover. And it was great. I loved it. You had a lot going for you with that cover. I mean, for one thing, like Natalie is saying, there is an element of Barnes and Noble. Yes. There is a single fella who does the purchasing for YA for Barnes and Noble. His name is Brian. I'm not kidding. And he does all the purchasing and he can look at something and say, this needs this or this needs that. Right. And he's generally right. I mean, you were fortunate because you liked what he had to say. And you were like, yes, I mean, he's backing me up. And you did get a gender neutral cover for sure. one was lost. Right. And whether or not the tie in was there on purpose, I thought being a child of the 90s, there was such a Blair Witch reflection with that cover. Right. Immediately, I was like, I'm in. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny that you say that because there was, I pitched the book to them. Even when I first started talking about it, I loved the Blair Witch Project too. Same age, same general growing up period. Right. So it it definitely was an influencing factor. I'm like, there was something about the the claustrophobic atmosphere of being stuck in those woods. Now my book has absolutely nothing to do with the Blair Witch Project, but it does have a similar tone. So for that reason, I, I think that they could have, but then to, to none of our, like none of us really knew this was happening. They had relaunched Blair Witch Project. So that movie came out and had a little figure on the cover of the movie that was almost identical to the figure on my book. And I'm like, Hey, I'm going to take that. I, that's a win, win, win. It worked out beautifully. Everyone says don't judge a book by a cover, but everyone does it. I mean, every single so freaking true. person does it. Booksellers do it librarians do it readers do it everyone does it marketing does it that i mean that's what the cover is for it's the dating website thumbnail i mean exactly that matters the most that is what's going to catch somebody's eye and you absolutely have to have a good cover and you're fortunate enough with source books and that you have a voice and in that particular instance right. your voice was backed up by a bigger voice with more clout and you got what you needed and and it did in fact work out the way you're hoping. And then I think that's reflected in your cover for We All Fall Down. Right. Because it is very similar in um, artistic design to One Was Lost, yet not so much that people think it's a sequel. Exactly. I think that people have learned their lesson. At one point, we were we were talking about titles for We All Fall Down, and I was so afraid of sequelitis that they're not sequels because everything I write is a standalone thus far. One of the things that I strive for is having books that people can say, I just want to pick up a book and I want to stay up late and I want to get sucked into it. I don't want to have to commit to a Robert Jordan 10 book insanity. Like, I, I don't want that in my life, which, hey, I get you, dude. I'm raising three kids. I don't want that in my life either. Like, I've got enough commitment here. 
So it's good for me to be able to say, hey, here's one book. But I was so afraid that when we were talking about titles, at one point we had talked about two went out or something like that. And I'm like, definitely not because I have a one was lost. And if we put a two went out on this, everybody's going to be like, is it a sequel? And I'm not doing that game again. Mm -hmm. Author branding. That's something that can be really confusing for aspiring authors. Honestly, I still struggle with it as an established author, right? Yeah. So like to your mind, what is author branding? Well, it's H-E double hockey sticks, Mindy. That's what it is. The sales aspect of this job in general just sucks in the worst possible way. Like it's just awful. I'm not selling a Buick. I'm not good at this. Don't get me wrong. I'm a writer. Guys, I want you to buy my book. Anybody here that's on this side of the published author fence, we're all desperate for you to buy our books. Please buy our books. But I'm not good at selling my books like a car salesman. And there are authors who are, and they are amazing. And I watch them with just absolute fascination. Like, how do you do it? You just really go out there with that book and you're like, hey, you want to buy a book in a way that works. So branding at its best is that person being able to say, hey, I know that you want this thing and I can deliver it to you. And they have often an image like I write fun, quirky romances. Well, I don't. I do say I write creepy page turners. And that's true. I do. All of my books are different enough that that doesn't really make you a promise. And Mindy, my God, for you, it must be because you've written a really diverse variety of things. That's my bad. You know, I mean, it's one of those things where I have a lot of people, they ask, how do you brand? No matter what I'm writing, no matter what genre I'm in, it is going to be pretty bleak, fairly dark. There will be a body count. Um, There will definitely be a moment of hopelessness, probably light on the romance. You can kind of count on me to give you the same thing, whether it's a fantasy or a contemporary. But that's a really hard thing to explain if you haven't already read my books. I struggle with it. And that's on me for writing across genres. But at the same time, you know, it's like I got an idea for a fantasy and I wrote it. So sue me. So freaking hard, man. Like it just is. It's tough for me too. And I do write all thrillers right now. That's primarily what I write. I do go with the same thing. Like, what do I write? I write books that are going to keep you up too late. Turning pages. That's what I write. I write creepy books that are going to keep you up too late. That's my goal that really something that I brand and I put on buttons and I get bumpers to nope, nope, I don't do any of that. But I usually have a lot of repeat readers, which is very helpful. And it's because they want to come back. They want to stay up late. They want to be sucked into a book and keep guessing. They want to, what is going on? Mm -hmm. Well, I can give you that. This was a real stumbling block for me in RWA, which is kind of where I was raised, even though I wasn't writing romance. He But even though that's where I came up, it was a huge thing at that time in RWA. Everybody was talking about branding. If you're not branded, you're nobody and you're never going to make it. And it's funny because I started to believe that line. So here's the truth that I know. Mindy, when I think of you, you're right with all of those things. And that is how I describe your work. And when I'm recommending you to people, which I often do, I am looking for people who are going to enjoy a book that is dark, that is bleak, that is well-written. I'm looking for those things. They're going to be interested in that. But in the same breath, you aren't branded in a way that I can immediately pick up a bumper sticker and you have a little slogan on a hat. Like that's not who you are. It's also not what you need. So for those of you who don't have a real specific brand and you're panicked about that, you can let that go right now because I don't have a really specific brand and I'm doing a okay. 
I just need to know what I do well. And that's the thing you need to know, like, what am I doing well? What is the thing that's going to let me stand out and maybe get that first sale, get that agent to take another bite? What is the thing that I have? That is your brand right there. And you'll develop that and it'll change and shift. But those are the pieces I think you need to hold. Branding is really difficult and it's something that we all struggle with, even those of us that have been doing this for a while. As I was saying, I threw a wrench into my own works by writing so many different genres, but at the same time, I can and I like to and people will buy them. So let's just do it. You just need to write what appeals to you and what you enjoy and what you can sell. Definitely. And you were talking about the selling aspect of like hand selling, table selling at a festival or book fair, it is really hard. It's the worst. And you know who's really good at it? Jeff. Oh my gosh, Jeff Gerard. Oh, we love Jeff. We love to hate Jeff, but we really love him. And he is, he's ridiculously good at it. And he's not just good at selling his books, he'll sell your book. Oh yeah. He was at one of my very first bigger book shows. I went to Books by the Banks. I was newly released. I'd only been out for like two or three weeks. And he was so great to me. Like this was his hometown. He's a teacher there. So, I mean, you can't even fathom what this man accomplishes at a book show. Like it is ridiculous. There are people falling all over his table. You would think Stephen King just entered the room. It's crazy. So here he was. And like, he would just direct traffic over to me over and over again. He would never, ever cop to this, but he's incredibly gracious too. Like he's really funny, incredibly talented and very gracious. So he was very sweet to me, but yeah, he is a sales master. He's the best. Oh, he's really good. And he worked in marketing, right? For like 20 years or something ridiculous. He knows what he's doing. For the most part, you know, Mindy and I both consistently sell pretty well at shows. It's because we're loud and, you know, we make people laugh and people think we're funny, which we always feel, at least I always do. I'm like, oh God, honey, I'm I'm giving you a book that is not going to make you laugh, but here you go. But you can see the really introverted writers that are just totally miserable and hate being there every moment. And I feel so bad for them because it's just incredibly hard to sell a book if your nose is in your phone and you just can't look up. It's, but I get it. It's hard. If, if you're introverted and you have some social anxiety, it's got to be miserable. I can't, it's bad enough as an extrovert, man. I can't imagine. It should be said that you don't have to do those things. No. If you are so uncomfortable that you're going to be miserable, don't do them. You're not going to do yourself any favors. Mindy, you and I have talked about this a lot. I don't like doing solo signings. It's not fun for me. Mm-hmm. You, When you sign at a no. bookstore, most of the time, you're really just catching a chance sale. You're catching the two people in the area that don't already have your new release because most of your readers buy your next book. But maybe you have a couple mm-hmm. or you know a teacher that you've worked with or a librarian that you've presented to and they come and maybe bring somebody. So maybe you sell a few books, but... I know Margaret Peterson Haddix, I know her fairly well, and she's told me she showed up at at bookstores and sold one book. And I mean, this woman is an icon, but it just happens. So I don't do book signings alone for the most part. I always want at least one other person there because you don't have to sit there and feel like you've made a horrible life choice. You can talk to somebody and hang out and you draw a little more attention anyway, because there's a couple of you. It's just a good thing. So you do need to learn the things that work for you. And I've learned signing alone just makes me feel like crap. And if you have a book show experience that doesn't work for you, don't repeat it. Like there's no reason to do something that you're like, I sold nothing. I felt awful and it derailed my writing for two weeks. Well, that is not a good plan to repeat. Do something else. Solo book signings are difficult 
even if you're an extrovert, it's hard to flip that switch alone and by yourself. Yeah. If Natalie and I are together, we warm each other up and we're good to go. Right. But if I'm alone, it's hard for me to just get out of that shell and be like, hello. If you're doing a Barnes and Noble, they're smart. They put you by the front door. Right, right. And that's great because you're going to catch people. But a lot of people just think you're the greeter. Right. Yes. Can you tell me where the children's section is? I don't actually work yeah. here. That gets to you. Like after a while, you're like, shit, I got out of retail for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. when you're working alone, Cinda Williams Chima told me a great story. She's from Ohio too. She's a friend of ours, our little group circle. And she told me a wonderful story. It was her very first book and she was signing in a little mom and pop bookstore. I want to say that it was in Texas. She was with Putnam at the time. Oh, okay. They had sent her on a couple of little signings. So she had a card table and a stack of books and did not sell a single copy. And she was just sitting there and thinking, what have I done with my life? I can't. <laughs> this is what this solo is signings happening. do people. Yes. Right. I flew out to Texas to not sell a single book. Uh, this book is failing. It's my first release. It's obviously a flop. No one is even looking at it. And she was sitting there having all these thoughts. This was release week. Right. And her phone rang. And it was her agent telling her that she hit the New York Times. I love it. It is so weird. Like you can go to a book signing with a book that is selling hot banana cakes on fire and you can't sell any of them, but you will sell a bunch of your book that usually doesn't move very well. It, you just don't know how those things are going to turn out. Sometimes they're absolutely just duds. Several signings that I've had where I've sold really no, low numbers and I, you know, I've driven for them and I thought, man, I sold like eight books. Was this really worth a six hour drives? I could have been writing. I could have been doing this. You play these games with yourself. This is what happens. Like you drive mm -hmm. home bitter mm -hmm. and hateful and eating something incredibly fattening and, and deep fried generally. So you're doing all of that. But then two weeks later, you'll get two phone calls with school visit setups from people that you met at that yeah. signing. You don't question it too much. Don't put too much stock in it. If you sold two books, you might end up with school signings. Some of them go nowhere. Some of them go somewhere really good. Sometimes you'll go to an event thinking it'll be nothing. Oh my gosh, Minnie and I just did an event together that I'm sure we both went into being like, eh, we're going to sell two books. What did we sell? That was crazy. Two books. Yeah. Oh no, no, the one at Barnes and Noble. Yeah, it was. Oh, we sold like we sold like hotcakes. It was nuts. I mean, we I sold out of my backlist. I think you sold most yep, of yours. Yep. I sold most of mine, and they had me come back in for signing. It, it was crazy, and it was the kind of signing that we were both fully convinced. Like I didn't agree to it until I found out somebody was going. I'm like, uh, oh, Mindy's going to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do that. But it ended up being great. So you just never know. No, you never know. Sometimes it's something really small that made it worth it. You and I both, I twisted your arm into going with me to an event that was consignment. And we were just kind of scoping out the place. It was kind of a bust. I think you and I each sold one book. Yeah. We were there for as long as we needed to be. We were hanging out together. We had a good time. Probably a waste of gas, but we carpooled. Right. So we crossed the street and we're like, hey, there's a bakery over there. Let's go into that bakery and we went in there and the girl was getting our donuts for us and she was like okay I don't mean to be weird but are you Mindy McGinnis and Natalie Richards and we were like what is happening right now that was it so was cool. so crazy this bakery was right across from the bookstore 
did they have our posters up or something? Is that how you recognize this? And she said, no, you came to my school a few years ago. That school visit had such an impact that she remembered our faces and our names and continued to read our books. And so it was this totally shitty bookstore visit. And we we drove home like, oh my God, our lives are great. (laughs) It really was. It was very cool. So easy to get very caught up. And oh my God, how many did I sell? And what did I do? And how many people did I talk to? I don't even think about it anymore because I realize, like, you just don't know. That event was weird in its own way, but we had a good drive and we had a lot of fun and we had this incredible experience in a donut shop where both of us, I mean, dude, it's weird enough for one of us to get recognized. Authors don't get recognized. We're not movie stars. We're not, our faces aren't, out. it's our books. But for us to both get recognized, that was cool and fun and just, that was yeah, it was kismet. I really think that was that moment that's like, you just never know what things are going to touch. So it's cool. It was very fun. Lastly, how a full-time working mother of three manages to publish a book a year, what Natalie is working on now, and where to find her online. So let's talk about time management. You mentioned earlier, you work, you work full-time, and that's a big issue. I know you're exhausted all the time. So time management, it's a big issue for working authors. And I know that you've worked full-time and been a writer and worked part-time and been a writer. And I think there was a point where you were working one full-time job, one part-time job and writing. I mean, you're you're just like constant. I really am very tired a lot of the times. I need to add that you've produced a book a year since 2013, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very tired. You're very tired, but you know what? It's possible. It's It's possible. And you're proof of that. It's totally possible. I have three kids. So they want to hang out with me and they want to talk to me and they want to ask me about something they wrote in their homework and this, that. And I want to be there. Like, that's what parenting is. I have three kids. I have a full-time job. I work at a library. I have the best job in the world. I work for the best library I've ever seen. They're wonderful. It's, It's an incredible blessing to work there. But I've always worked and written. And I think there are two things that I really believe about being a working writer. And I have been a working writer where all I did was write and and have my kids. And I've been part-time and I've been full-time. Mostly, I would say I've been part-time or full-time. So the one thing that working and writing does is you are really forced on routine. You do not have the option to procrastinate the way you do when you are actually a stay-at-home writer. When I did nothing but write, I cannot even express to you the way I would push my deadlines. I would be like, you know, I could write for like 12 hours tomorrow so I can just blow off today. Well, that's no longer an option when I'm like, no, I've got a 40-hour work week and I've got to produce this mm-hmm. book and I've got a hockey game to go to for this kid and, and this concert for that kid. Like it's a whole different ballgame. I need to get this writing in. You also learn to write in very small chunks. Actually, when I had to go back to work full-time, Mindy was one of the people that I reached out to. You were awesome. Kind of told me some of the tricks of the trade. And one of the things that you told me that I've really taken to heart and always done since then is you can write in very small chunks. You do not have to write in these four-hour light, the incense, and let the sun stream through the window. Like, you can do it. You do. Necessity breeds ability. It really does. So I want to do this. It's important to me. I'm very passionate about it. So I am going to continue to write. It's very difficult. Many writers that are consistently publishing will get to a place where they can just write, be able to afford to do that on just writing. But that can fade. That can go away and people can have to go back to work. I know a ton of writers that were like, yeah, I quit for three years, but then I had to go back. I know a ton of writers that have been Mm -hmm. published for 10 years that have never been able to quit their jobs or never wanted to. Mm -hmm. 
it's very likely that even if you do hit that contract, you're still going to have to work. You know, I don't know very many people at all that were able to quit immediately. If you're not really hustling, you're going to have to go back to work anyway. Those mm-hmm. big contracts, we all think, oh, if I just got a six-figure contract, well, honey, the people that I know that have had six-figure contracts, those contracts are spread out over four years. <laughs> so it's not really yep. the money you think it is. So and that's all pre-tax. Yes, it yep. is. And that's something that I've tried to hit on before on the podcast is that you hear about so-and-so got a six-figure deal. I got a six-figure deal. And true, I do not work uh, full-time any longer, but I was working full-time when I got my six-figure deal. And uh, my boyfriend's mom called him because it was announced on Publishers Weekly and I put it on Facebook. So she called him and she was like, oh, my God, are you paying off the house? Are you getting a boat? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And he was like, no, mom. (laughs) (laughs) I got that a lot because I was in Target and Walmart, you know, like the people are like, oh, you must be rolling in it. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. Rolling in something. All right. And it is a misconception and it's an understandable misconception. I mean, yeah, that's one of the things It's the positivity machine of publishing where they're like, yes, so-and-so was given this much money and it just makes you sound awesome and cool. And this book must be amazing. You might be awesome and cool. And the book probably is, hopefully is amazing, but that doesn't mean that you can quit your job. Now I was on the contract for my fifth published book before I quit my job and I did not quit my job because I was suddenly flush. I quit my job because the nature of my job changed and I was no longer going to be in the library. I was only going to be in the library for about 40 minutes of the day. I was going to be in a classroom for seven hours. And I was like, yeah, that's not who I am. And that doesn't work for me. It happened to come at a time when I can afford to do it. But like you're saying, I mean, that could change for me. I've been not working for two years now, but I am always keeping my resume up to date because you never yeah, know. This is definitely not the career to choose if you want financial stability. This is not what this is. You can have a year where you're gravy and then you can have a year where you're like, oh, right. holy crap. Like it's, it's just not a career that has that consistency that affords that very easily. Something interesting that I've come across recently is that it actually makes it difficult to get loans. Oh, gosh. Because I don't have an employer. I have income, but they want to know your projected income. They're like, well, how much are you going to make next year? And I'm like, I have no idea. (laughs) I could make uh, six figures. I could make zero. It's like, I just don't know, guys. You know, and that makes the banks go, okay, we really don't want to give you a loan then. (laughs) It is the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst, dude. It came up with me when we refinanced. It was the same thing. Well, how much money are you making next year? I don't know. They're royalties. Because again, I have smaller advances and a lot of my money will come back the other way. Obviously, we're getting into the technicalities here, but you don't have health insurance. You don't have retirement. You don't have the things that you need to be a functioning adult. It can be really hard. And there are times when I think to myself that I should not have quit my job so that I had health insurance so that I had retirement. And then I remember that I didn't want to be in a classroom. I'm still comfortable with my choice. I could be more financially comfortable if I hadn't made that choice. One of the reasons that I continue to work, do I need to work full time? Probably not. But I love my job. I work at a library and they're amazing and I get to be surrounded by books all day. I mean, there is nothing better. And I I work with incredibly talented, brilliant people. I'm not going to lie to you. It's very nice to have the insurance. That's very nice. Oh, of course it is. If the nature of my job had not changed, I would have kept doing it despite 
the low right. pay because I did love yeah. the job and I had insurance and I had retirement. So, hey, last thing, I want you to tell us what's coming up for you next and where listeners can find you on social media. So I just returned to social media. I had a little break. The place I'm the most active anymore would be Instagram. I am Nat D. Richards. Natalie D. Richards did not fit on anything. So I am just Nat, N-A-T, D. Richards on Instagram Jeez. and on Twitter and on a few other places. But I, I love Instagram. That is where you can really see what I'm up to and what I'm fiddling around with and what I do in my spare time, as well as some book tidbits. I am on Facebook as well, but very infrequently. I'm pretty quiet there. Of mm -hmm. course, I'm Nat D. Richards at gmail.com. If you ever want to drop me a line, many do. I'm always happy to hear from readers or people with questions. But I am writing a very creepy book about a library. So let's say that. We can tell you that. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, that's exciting enough. I like it. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>